When Americans think of the history of slavery, their gaze likely sets on the American South, or at least the Eastern United States. Those are the regions, of course, that had the largest numbers of enslaved persons before the Civil War. A growing body of scholarship, however, is broadening our view to remind us that slavery extended across the continent. In fact, many argue that the Civil War was not simply a fight over the future of slavery, but a war of empire and deciding if that westward expanding empire would be one of free labor or slave labor. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensick. This month, we talk with historian Kevin Waite about his award-winning book, West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021 in their David J. Weber series in the New Borderlands History. As Waite shows us, slaveholders had aggressive and ambitious plans for extending their plantation economies across the continent to the Pacific. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West, historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Kevin Waite is an assistant professor of history at Durham University in the United Kingdom. His 2021 book, West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire, won the 2022 Wiley Silver Prize from the Center for Civil War Research and was a finalist for the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize from the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History. Waite's book points us to the Western ambitions of Southern slaveholders, politicians, and investors who by the late 1850s saw California, New Mexico, Arizona, and parts of Utah as extensions of their political power and landscapes ripe for large-scale slave economies. He traces these stories through the Civil War and into the era of Reconstruction, uncovering continued involvement of the now former Confederates in the Southwest. This work should be a wake-up call to historians from multiple regional subfields. Waite tells historians of the American South, Civil War, and Reconstruction to remember the transcontinental scope of the contemporary discussions and plans that animated the pre- and post-Civil War eras. To historians of the West, he reminds us that what we may have sometimes analyzed as discrete regional histories were in fact tied up in much larger contexts. 
This work of stitching together historical fields that sometimes operate too independently of one another is both powerful and exciting. It is a template that many others should adopt, zooming out from the narratives we are familiar with in regional histories and searching for the broader contexts and forces that likely drove them at the time. Professor Kevin Waite, welcome to Writing Westward. Uh, thanks, Brendan. Good to be here. I'm very excited to talk about your book. It's gotten quite a bit of buzz, and the project, when it was in development, um, I heard some buzz about it as well. So congrats on getting this out there. Oh, good. I, I had no idea my reputation preceded me, but that's good to hear. <laughs> all good, though. It was all good buzz. I okay. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, well, your book sits at the intersection of a lot of different fields of history. I'm curious what you consider yourself to be primarily. Do you think of yourself as a historian of the West, of the South, a historian of slavery? You know, which of these many hats that you wear do you do you feel most most comfortable in? Oh boy, it, I mean, it it changes. I think year to year, if not month to month. Um, I, I I mean, I got interested in history as a child because I was fascinated by the Civil War. So that's how I came to the topic and, and maybe how I came to this subject. Although um, when I started uh, the dissertation that became the book, um, I, I really considered myself a historian of slavery and probably a historian of the American South. I mean, I did my PhD under Steve Hahn at Penn. Um, and so that naturally sort of tilted me in the direction of the South uh, and of slavery and of African-American history. Um, but I, I would like to be considered equally a Western historian. Um, so maybe the cop-out answer is, is I, I haven't quite decided where I sit. And I hope that the, that the book successfully straddles multiple subfields and that I can speak with historians from, from each of those. It is a challenge, though. Um, my first book straddled way too many fields and disciplines. And you, I was always worried of kind of being the master of none, you know, by trying to do so many things. I don't do any one thing very well. So how have you approached this challenge of trying to bridge these oft disparate and disjointed fields and trying to bring them into conversation with one another? I mean, I, I hear you. I have that same that same concern about this book um, that it might just it it might fall into some sort of like liminal space between all these fields and and not get serious attention from scholars and and them. Um, uh, I I tried in the book to deal seriously and at length with the historiographic debates that animate a lot of those subfields, um, and so. I mean, I, I wanted to demonstrate that I, I, I understood the field uh, and I was grappling seriously with the questions that sort of animate that field. Um, whether, and I think readers and reviewers have had their own interpretations about where this book sits and that's actually just fine. Um, I'm, I'm fine with some reviewers thinking that this is really a book about the Civil War. Um, and I'm fine with other reviewers thinking that this book is really a history of the American West. I mean, I guess it partly depends on, on wherever that review appears. Have you received any pushback from any of these different fields? Yeah, I, I'm sure. I, I mean, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the things I wish that the book did better, full disclosure, um, is address the um, the the the, the counter narrative um, or address the um, those who pushed back against this 
um, Southern extension into the American Far West, uh, whether that's enslaved African Americans or Native Americans, um, or the sort of numerous white settlers from the American North and various parts of the Southwest. Um, there were people who were trying to construct alternate narratives for the region, and to varying extents were successful. Yeah, but you know, a book can't do can't do it all. Your editors want you to end the page count at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. And the book was already getting long in the tooth by the time I submitted it. That end somewhere. This is the your book though is very much, I feel, in the the where the trajectory of where a lot of these fields are going. A lot of people are increasingly talking about the Civil War, not just as a war about slavery, but as a war about empire and about Western empire. And of course, specifically whether it would be built on free or slave labor out West, but trying to take the Civil War era and orient our gaze farther West. And I know there's been some panels and discussions at conferences uh, with some Civil War historians really pushing back against this, trying to say, you know, though the West was, it's just a footnote and your book and a lot of others are trying to pull the Civil War in, uh, in this direction. So. Uh, I think the fact that you maybe have some pushback is is emblematic of some broader broader tensions that are ongoing. I think that's right, and I'd I'd rather have pushback than than no pushback at all. Um, I, I want people to engage critically and disagree with the book. Um, oh, j- just to speak to your point about um, the scholarship on civil war and the, on the civil war in the far west. I mean, in, in some ways, that was the starting point for this project because, like I said earlier, I I did and do consider myself a civil war historian, and I am interested in sort of the the geography of the civil war and what gets included in the war wartime narrative and what doesn't. Um, but the so so the starting point at in some ways was the Civil War, but I wanted to backdate that story. I wanted to backdate the story of the Confederate invasion of the Far West and this very short-lived dream of Confederate empire in Arizona and New Mexico, and maybe even if they were lucky in California, um, because I actually found the antebellum prehistory to that story um, more interesting and more revealing of more aspects of history that I was interested in. Was there a specific event or something, book or something you came across that tipped you off to this more rich Western pre-Civil War story that we haven't really integrated into the historiography very well? What was it that that grabbed you? Yeah, I remember having this sort of eureka moment as a first-year grad student at Penn, um, reading Leonard Richards' The California Gold Rush and the Coming of the Civil War, um, which is a really good account of why California was so pro-Southern and pro-slavery in the 1850s. Um, it, it reads really well. Um, I just had different questions than I think Leonard Richards did. Um, but that was the first time that I realized that I could, in fact, marry my interest in the history of slavery, the history of the American South, African-American history, the history of the American West, and the Civil War, that, that there was a bigger story that sort of tied them all together. Yeah, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can do it all. Uh, or, or at least yeah. try to. <laughs> well, from the earliest colonial eras, um, you know, American settlers were always looking West. It was always about expansion, right? you know, coming here to the continent. But how far back can you trace 
uniquely Southern, what we might identify as, you know, a uniquely Southern perspective uh, looking out to the West. When do those early moments appear and what do they look like? I mean, I begin the book, I begin chapter one with Thomas Jefferson and his dream of uh, sort of a Pacific outlet for the United States, although Jefferson himself conceded that the United States itself may not straddle the continent. Maybe there would be multiple republics governed by basically white Americans. Um, uh, so it begins with Thomas Jefferson, but then I sort of, I, I qualify that beginning by saying this is Jefferson's vision of a Pacific outlet isn't isn't uniquely Southern. It's not pro-slavery. Um, the, the idea of the West and the West belonging to some sort of pro-slavery Southern um, political orbit is really a story of the U.S.-Mexico war, I think. It, it begins in 1846, uh, maybe in 1845 with the debates over the Transcontinental Railroad and Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Texas is the obvious starting point, but then uh, when, when we're talking about California too, um, I, I think it's I think it's a story of the 1840s. But like, if we go back to the 1820s and 30s, you know, there's this aggressive southern ex- expansion into the I guess the old old Southwest, right, with the removal of indigenous peoples and so forth. During that era, are they talking about expanding slavery uh, beyond kind of into the Trans Mississippi West, or at that 1820s 1830s era, are they still kind of just within that more regional southern space in their thinking? They're, they're mostly in a regional southern space, but of course there is knowledge of, of what California and the far west looks like, even though that knowledge is sometimes incomplete. Um, and you're right, it is, it is Texas. It is, it's really the 1830s then that some slaveholders began to think of ways to integrate a slaveholding political economy across the trans-Mississippi west. Um, so, so the, maybe the birth of the dream is in the 1830s with Texas and some Texans looking all the way to the Pacific, and then the maturation of that dream really comes in the 1840s with the war against Mexico. So as those spaces out west kind of become actual possible places, right, be it with Texas annexation or, you know, these early rumblings about going to war with Mexico and so forth, um, Southerners immediately kind of begin dreaming. I mean, that's how you subtitle your book, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire. Uh, So once the possibilities are opened a little bit, they immediately project ideas out there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And the the subtitle is a riff on um, Robert May's excellent book, The Southern Dream of the Caribbean Empire. Um, And I just want to see what happens when we sort of shift our historical perspective in the opposite direction. And I think that this, this Southern dream of an empire looks every bit as robust in the West as it did across the Caribbean basin. When they start looking farther and farther West, does their, does the, the dream of the type of Southern society or slave holding economy, does it start to shift or evolve the farther West they project those ideas? It does. And it's not strictly imperial in every sense of that term, wherever you look in the West. I mean, I tried to be careful with my terminology there um, because an empire has a, has a specific valence and specific meaning. Um, and so, you know, I tried to argue that Southern 
electioneering in California in the 1850s doesn't necessarily belong to an imperial project, although it certainly sustains this attempt of Southerners to project their power across the continent. And then similarly, um, the first chapter deals a little bit with the Southern dream of um, really introducing cotton en masse to the China market. Um, and they're, I mean, they're moderately successful in this dream. Um, they do make China the leading American export to, to, they do make cotton the leading American export to China during um, the sort of early antebellum period. Um, it never quite gains the, the economic foothold in China that they, they hope it will, um, but it's there. Um, and in a lot of ways, they sort of, they orient American foreign policy around this dream of, of opening a wedge in the China market. And all, a lot of this really relies on having ports in the Pacific or the dream of having ports in the Pacific and then infrastructure that links, links it all together, right? Exactly. This, this animates uh, some other portions of the early part of your book. And I think a lot of people maybe are generally aware of the pre-Civil War debates about the Transcontinental Railroad, especially because we just celebrated 150 years of you know, the golden spike and all that. So there's a lot of railroad talk going on. But these debates over, is it going to be a northern route or a southern route? And you go into, into great detail about those fights because whoever kind of won that debate might be able to project their economy out west. Um, uh, and it was, they viewed it as a zero-sum game, right? If the, nor the northern route, then the south would suffer. It was a, if it was a southern transcontinental route, the north would suffer, right? There were going to be advantages um, that's really where you see the sectionalization of the idea of the West. Um, when American politicians talk seriously about the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad and they, they realize that it, or they think that it is, like you said, a zero-sum game. Um, and that's when ideas about American expansion into places like California and even across the Pacific can no longer be sort of uh, broadly American. They become sectionalized. Yeah. I mean, my students are always you know, shocked and we talk about the nullification crisis and like, so what was the South Carolina was so upset about? And, you know, it was about, you know, tariffs and taxes and stuff, but that they view that the North is benefiting uniquely and we are not, um, or there's trade policies that the South is uh, being damaged by, right? So it's no wonder that as we project westward with the promise of uh, potential Asian markets, which that was always what we came here for. That's where the huge money was going to be. So no wonder that the gloves really come off and the sectional divide deepens the, the closer we get to the Pacific or making that a reality. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's a story as old as sort of the European invention of America, right? I mean, the Pacific market is what set Columbus across the ocean, even though he didn't quite know what he was going to find. Well, the railroad story, I feel, I bring this up because I feel that a lot of people are vaguely familiar with that tension a little bit, but less so you talk about, I think you call it like the lesser slave road. If the transcontinental railroad uh, was going to be you know, like the great slave road, uh, you talk about other forms of transit, uh, camels, uh, freight, overland mail and coaches. Um, I feel like this is a topic that a lot of people do not know much about and specifically don't know about how the South leveraged these other forms of transportation and infrastructure, a pre-railroad. Um, 
to really expand uh, aggressively into the Southwest and the Far West. So can you talk to us a little bit about these other transportation networks that they started building and leveraging? Yeah, I think that's right, that people don't really, when they think about the coming of the Civil War, they're not thinking about infrastructure projects in the Southwest. I mean, maybe that's because infrastructure projects in the Southwest aren't exactly the sexiest topic under the sun. Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty sexy stuff. I mean, Infra- I, infrastructure I'm, week, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly interested. But also, also when people think stagecoaches, I think they, it just, they think of these Hollywood visions, right. Of, you know, where it's like a rich white couple in a stagecoach, you know, just going across and being chased by Indians or something. They don't view these as uh, transportation networks that are moving, not just a few people, but moving freight and moving moving power, uh, economic yeah. power, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, freight, they're, they're moving economic power, they're moving people, they're moving political ideas. Um, they're moving the sort of political orientation of the United States. Um, which is why immigrate, which is why transportation is so important, right? Um, and, and maybe another reason why it gets sort of cut out of the sectional crisis story is that at least elements of the the dispute over transportation in the Southwest seem sort of quixotic. I mean, the the Jefferson Davis Camel experiment is just wacky. Um, and and for those of you who don't know much about it, Jefferson Davis. Um, convinced Congress after he was initially derided for the idea. I mean, if you read the Congressional Globe record, um, uh, congressmen are, are like laughing at Davis and there's record of that laughter in the Congressional Globe <laughs> when he first pitches this idea of a camel corps to um, sort of prop up the military in, in the uh, American Southwest. But he, he eventually gets a congressional appropriation for the Camel Corps and about a hundred camels make their way to uh, Texas and New Mexico and parts of California. And then maybe another hundred camels make their way to the plantations of the deep South. And the idea there was to, um, uh, to make passage across the American Southwest safe for Southerners. Um, I mean, safe for all Americans, but really ideally safe for Southerners uh, across this corridor from Texas to California. And if you make that corridor safer and cheaper and easier, then of course, people are gonna follow along it and people are gonna bring their their sort of pro-Southern, pro-slavery politics with them. And you're gonna be able to extend the, the, re, the, the orbit of your politics across this part of the country. Um, and so the Camel Corps dies sort of an inglorious death. I mean, the camels are eventually sort of auctioned off. Some of them make cameo appearances in certain battalions in the Civil War, and that's about the end of it. Um, but the, the underlying motive behind the Camel Corps was actually remarkably successful. Um, and it, it, it gets sort of pushed forward in all sorts of these Southwestern infrastructure projects, which Southerners by and large dictate. So uh, on the ground, uh, how do these later projects of these overland mail and freight um, networks, on the ground, how do they extend slavery into the, the far west? So by the late 1850s, the overland mail road, or what was often called the Butterfield overland mail at the time, um, it was the first federally funded 
national overland railroad that ran right across the deep southern route that slaveholders wanted for their uh, for their railroad. Um, and the conventional thinking at the time was that, well, first you build this stagecoach line, this mail line across the country, and then uh, inevitably uh, iron rails are going to follow that. Um, and I mean, the, the fact that Southerners pushed this mail road through Congress was an absolute coup. And it was really regarded as one of the um, one of the flashpoints in the sectional crisis at the time. Again, it's sort of fallen out of the sectional narrative because, you know, who a mail road, okay. Um, but, uh, but for those who were following American politics in the late 1850s, this moment when Southerners win this mail road across, you know, the deep South really feels like the winds of history are starting to blow in the deep South's direction. And that freaks the North out quite a bit. It really does, yeah. I mean, the the northern response, and again, go to the Congressional Globe, and it's all over the place. Is really hysteria, and it's pretty well founded hysteria. I mean, if if people really did think that the railroad was going to follow this mail road, then um, then the North was in trouble in the late eighteen fifties. So, do these early infrastructure networks do they bring actual um, enslaved peoples and slave economies? extensively to the West, or do they more bring uh, pro-slavery individuals, uh, politicians, other and economic agents, more so than the actual enslaved populations? Mostly the latter. I mean, we do have records of some enslaved people being moved over these roads, um, but it was mostly the politics of slavery rather than the physical presence of of slavery that was being shifted westward over time. I mean, in the late 1850s, or you know, maybe across the antebellum period, you have maybe as many as 1,500 enslaved African Americans in California, maybe as many uh, as about 100 of them in Utah, and maybe uh, as many as about 100 of them in New, New Mexico. So we're not talking a statistically significant population, but for each and every one of those people, this was, of course, a significant thing. Whereas in Texas, where it was a much, well, obviously much closer to the South. They didn't need a big, huge new infrastructure project to move enslaved peoples into Texas. Uh, there, that they're there in much larger numbers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so really, the the upshot of some of this infrastructure and just Southern migration across the American Southwest in general was the movement of sort of a a, a pro-slavery political consensus into this region. Um, and people like Horace Greeley were, were alert to this fact. He said, I, the issue at hand isn't the number of slaves that we can count in, say, New Mexico. The issue is really the political power that these white Southern immigrants control in the region, and they control a lot. And he said, you know, look at Delaware. Delaware doesn't have a very large slave population, but boy, those relatively few Southern slaveholders seem to have a lot of power. Um, and basically, you're going to get Delaware and New Mexico. You're going to get Delaware and California. Um, and, you know, to a, to a certain extent, you get Delaware and Utah. Although Utah is obviously it's it, it's its own special case. Yeah, I mean, you know, we however the the saying goes, you know, that history is written by the victors, or you know, however that goes. Um, uh, you know, the North wins the Civil War, and as such it seems that a lot of the pre-Civil War Southern successes 
of expanding into the far west have kind of been written out of public consciousness so that now we have the public has these moments of you know encounter you know like confederates in unexpected places you know when they like wow there's confederate a confederate graveyard in central utah or in arizona or and people think that's that isn't that crazy who would have thought but but it's obviously because you know the post-civil war era that this earlier history of Southerners down there or, the, or pro-slavery politicians in some cases really controlling some of these Southwestern regions kind of been largely largely forgotten. And, and you talk about a lot of them. Um, what are some of the more um, important ones for us to think about, to reorient how we think about say pre-Civil War uh, California or South, the Southwest? What are the moments that might make us think differently about it um, in terms of, of the, what the Southerners were doing down there? I would say you can start with the secession crisis. Um, you know, it's say 1859 really into 1861, um, when the loyalty of a good portion of the country seems undecided. Um, you know, obviously, by the spring of 1861, you know where the you know where the most of the South stands. You know where most of the North stands. Um, but where does you know about a quarter of the American map stand? The American Southwest. I tried to make this argument in a recent article, and I call it the Brittle West. Um, this portion of the country that encompasses New Mexico and Utah, what becomes Arizona and California. Um, and this is the part of the country that, you know, for years and years had been threatening to sort of break apart into all sorts of different geographic configurations. I mean, Californians, since California came into the union, had been clamoring about forming their own Pacific Republic. Um, Arizona had been trying to split from New Mexico um, basically since, since New Mexico was brought into the union as a territory. Um, and of course, Utah is its own experiment in political separation. Um, For their dreams this, of the state of Deseret, which was exactly you know, it, it's like half of the entire West, is enormous. Yeah, exactly. Great, right. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I, I think from the perspective of beleaguered unionists in the American West, this part of the country could have sort of shattered into any number of different configurations. Um, and it's only with, you know, the clarity of 2020 historical hindsight, that it seems you know, manifest that the union would hang together. Um, but you know, first the union had to be brought together north and south, but it also had to be held together uh, west and east. Um, and, and a lot of people at the time predicted that the United States would actually fracture into multiple republics if only the Confederate experiment was successful. And I think that's right. I think if the Confederacy had won the war, we would have seen a further fracturing of the Union. I mean, that's a great counterfactual, and I don't want to you know, get too speculative here. Um, but that's why I think the, the, the secession crisis is such an interesting point at which to consider the, the, the power of pro-slavery Southerners in the far West and the, you know, the different future that the United States could have followed. This is without, yeah, without getting into crazy counterfactual alternate historical timelines, this is an important thing that historians do. We read contingency back onto the historical record with knowing what eventually did happen. We often inappropriately just assume, well, that's obviously the way it was going to happen. 
but you're arguing that throughout the 1840s and especially into the 1850s as tensions are mounting it was not clear which way the sorry which way a lot of the west would go if they'd go union or confederate Exactly. Yeah. And even people in the West weren't exactly clear where where the loyalties of their region really lay. Well, the great example you dedicated you know, a lot of pages to is California and um, the dominance of uh, pro-slavery Southern politicians in California politics throughout the 1850s. Uh, give us a little peek at this story, because I bet even a lot of Californians who think they know their California history don't realize how stridently pro-slavery the California state legislature was. Yeah, I mean, I was one of those Californians myself. I would say all the way up to the moment that I started writing this dissertation come book, um, I didn't, I, I sort of, I had heard somewhere at some point that California was a, maybe a more pro-slavery place than it's like current politics might have you believe. Um, but I had no idea just how deep the sort of pro-slavery base of power ran in California. And, you know, it's, it's tempting to dismiss the history of slaveholders in California because obviously it comes into the union as a free state in 1850. And yes, there were enslaved people who were forcibly imported into California, beginning with the gold rush and really continuing into the early 1850s and mid 1850s. Um, but I, th I think the real story or, or the story that I was trying to tell wasn't about the presence of slavery in California so much as the power that slaveholders wielded there. And that's largely due to one man in particular, a guy named William Gwynn, who was California's ranking senator through most of the 1850s, who was unapologetically pro-slavery. I mean, he was a Mississippi planter who continued to own and operate uh, his plantation outside Natchez with about 200 enslaved people on it. Um, and Californians, by and large, I mean, obviously there were, um, there were anti-slavery politicians and voters in the state who didn't like how he was running the show, but it's remarkable how, um, uh, how, how little pushback there was to his rule and, and the rule of his clique of these pro-slavery Southerners. Um, so the California Supreme Court was just a bastion for these, for these buddies of William Gwynn, these white Southerners. Not all of them were slaveholders, but basically most all of them were, were pro-slavery loyalists. So in the mid-1850s, five of the seven justices that sat on the California Supreme Court were pro-slavery Southerners. And then one of the Northerners was a supporter of John C. Calhoun. Um, so anytime a case came to the California Supreme Court about slavery, and they did, you could, you could tell exactly how the court was going to vote. So how does... Um, how does this exist as California is nominally a free state? At, uh, at the time, I mean, it seems like a, this grand paradox. So how, how do they sort through this? Exactly. It's, um, it, it is paradoxical, I think. I mean, California is really a free state name only, right? Um, that, uh, and, and, and maybe this is one of the reasons why historians haven't paid as much attention, I think, to the history of slaveholding and pro-slavery politics in the far West um, and in California in particular uh, is because legally slavery was outlawed there. Um, but I think we need to pay closer attention to sort of the insidious and more subtle ways 
that slaveholders' power you know, reached across the continent. Um, it wasn't just about the presence of enslaved people. It was about who controls the state legislature, who controls the Supreme Court, who controls the, the patronage system. That was really the way that a lot of these white Southerners were able to retain their power in California because the patronage system is how, how you sort of grease the wheels of political action in the antebellum period. Um, and they held all the patronage posts. I mean, the San Francisco Customs Office was so full of these white Southerners that they called it the Virginia Poorhouse, because all these white Southerners were just collecting fat federal checks um, because they knew the right people. And that's how politics ran in California, and that's why these guys could hold on to power. How aware were Southern politicians in the South or you know, at the national level, but representing Southern states? How closely were they watching California in the 1850s? Are they sitting there trying to, you know, say when uh, bleeding Kansas breaks out and there's these debates over the Lecompton Constitution or, you know, who they're going to side with? Um, are national Southern politicians kind of trying to read the tea leaves out in California? Uh, are they, or is it just off the map and they don't think it's important? Or is that an important place for them that they're thinking about consciously and vocally talking about, well, California's reacting like this? as they're kind of projecting forward? Mm, some, some of them definitely are thinking very seriously about California and in fact, corresponding with California politicians um, to, to gauge where the state's loyalties lie and where they might sort of pull the levers. Um, so Jefferson Davis, who in a lot of ways is the sort of central character of the book, um, has this ongoing correspondence with, uh, with Southern Dem Democrats in California. Um, because, you know, California at the time has two House seats and it has crucially two Senate seats. Um, and he's a guy with his finger on the pulse. Um, he places, you know, great importance on the far West. Um, and he knows that for Southern Democrats to retain, you know, their basically their veto power in the Senate, they need to hold places like California. Um, so, I mean, it's it's not a coincidence that, you know, during the Compromise of 1850, you get Southerners sort of gnashing their teeth and pulling their hair when they realize that California is going to come into the Union as a free state. And then all of a sudden, they're they're kind of OK with the state after that, because they, it's a they free mostly, state, but with their guys. Running. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and in Congress, they get what they want from California's delegation. Hmm. Well, if we jump forward to the post-Civil War era, uh, the story kind of continues in really fascinating ways during the era of Reconstruction. And we have this resurgence of Southern democratic politics in California during Reconstruction. Um, and the, the question that came to my mind as I was reading, uh, you know, I, I've taught Reconstruction like almost, you know, every semester for I don't know how long. And it's always interesting looking through just how, you know, upset Southern Southern Democrats especially were at the overbearing nature of Northern Reconstruction and whatnot. And then as I read here about California, which again, this isn't something that I was very aware of, uh, I immediately thought, huh, I wonder if Southerners uh, viewed California as a place during Reconstruction where they could go and uh, kind of have the freedom to move a little bit more politically, to operate more outside the bounds, the literal bounds of military reconstruction of the South. Like, oh, well, out in California, we can do what we want to do. Is, is that something 
in the Southern public consciousness? Because it seems to be what happened during the 1870s. Certainly for some Southerners, California has this has this lure for them. Um, and there's one woman in particular who in the Reconstruction era starts writing to all of her friends in the Deep South saying, come on in, the water's fine. California welcomes you with open arms. She even starts sort of a fund to attract um, and support these Southerners. Um, also, the, the Republican Northern-born uh, people in California were really worried about this possibility. They thought that California was basically going to become a haven for all these disaffected former Confederates. It never, their, their fears never quite materialized. Um, but you get a lot of these really interesting experiments that are run by migratory white Southerners after the war. I mean, there's this brief attempt to turn California into the next great cotton producing region. Um, and one of the arguments that these Southern transplants make about California cotton is that, well, look, in California, you can use sort of quasi unfree Chinese labor. You don't have to put up with all these pesky, you know, free African-Americans. It was sort of their rebellion against emancipation. Um, that, that experiment ultimately founders because California is, is awfully far from their main markets and uh, they hadn't quite mastered the problem of irrigation. Um, but, you know, this, again, all these counterfactuals of what could have been if, if Southerners maybe spent a little bit more time and, and money and, and effort on some of their projects. And of course, I don't know, I mean, exactly how many years later, you know, another half century later, there is an, an influx of Southerners to California during, during the Great Depression, right? Okies, exactly. Markies and others. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, but a couple um, generations and- later. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is sort of backdating that origin story of California's conservative Southern roots. Yeah, um, that, that was some of the literature that I was working with as I thought through some of these questions. Um, you mentioned the Chinese, which is another unex- kind of unexpected tie-in here: uh, the presence of Chinese labor, uh, not just in California but all around the West. But then how that intersected with. Uh, Southern politicians in California, but also uh, uh, freedmen, former uh, enslaved peoples uh, that are out in the far West. And as they now find themselves in a a, a different place in the kind of economic pecking order, as it were. And you write about some moments of emancipated African-Americans really forwarding or, or latching onto the growing anti-Chinese sentiments in California as a vehicle for forwarding their own political fortunes. How does this story play out? Because this one, this is not one I was aware of. I've, I've taught often about, sorry to keep, I keep on almost asking a question and then interrupting with more questions, but um, you know, when, I, when I've taught you know, anti-Chinese riots in Denver and other places in the 1880s, often the people that were out there marching and writing were other liminal groups like the Irish or people who hadn't been fully accepted into the white mainstream. And so anti-Chinese immigration rhetoric was something they could use to move themselves into the mainstream. And so is this a corollary of freedmen somewhat doing the same thing with Chinese? I think that's a really good way to put it. And here I'm drawing on the work of uh, Josh Pattison and Michael Bottoms and, and Stacy Smith. 
um, who deal with the with the problem and the question of race in in Civil War era and Reconstruction era California really well. Um, but yeah, it, that's exactly what's happening here. Um, that there's a a struggle. There's a recognition that. It's, a, a pretty strict racial hierarchy is being constructed in California. Um, and, you know, white Californians have constructed it with obviously themselves at the very top. Um, but then there's this pecking order of ethnic minorities below them. And it's the sort of uh, African-Americans, some of whom were formerly enslaved, realize that they can't afford to be on the bottom of this pecking order because so much at, is at stake politically for them in the reconstruction era. Um, and so maybe one way to at least move move slightly ahead is to, to villainize Chinese immigrants and to ensure that the Chinese don't get the vote in California. Um, and, and that was a, a, a political scare tactic that Democrats used in the 1860s and early 1870s. Well, you can't enfranchise, you can't pass the 15th Amendment, you can't enfranchise African Americans because soon enough Chinese immigrants are going to get the vote and they represent about 10% of California's population. Um, and so white working class uh, California voters mobilize against the Republican agenda, partly because they're worried that it's sort of racially leveling policies are going to influence um, uh, the, the hierarchy in California and will empower Chinese people in particular. So it was a slippery slope that they were concerned about? It was, yeah, yeah. Was but then that. don't we have some strange bedfellows of former enslaved peoples, I mean, maybe not physically marching alongside, but perhaps in newspaper editorials and so forth, arguing the same points that some of these <clears throat> white Southerners are, or even white Southerners who are undertaking a kind of vigilante violence like clan violence in the South, there was stuff going on like that in California against the Chinese, uh, but these freedmen are somewhat aligned with them. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, yeah, on this one particular point, they are aligned with them, although those you know, white Southern Democrats in California would never go so far as to say they were really bedfellows with African-Americans, because at the same time that they were putting down Chinese immigrants, they were putting down African-Americans in the state. I mean, one of my favorite sources for this period, and I, I use that term um, with, uh, with, with criticism, is... Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin Walker, Benjamin Franklin Washington's um, newspaper that comes out of San Francisco, The Examiner. Um, Benjamin Franklin Washington was, you know, he really wins the sweepstakes of how many founding fathers' names can you stuff into your own. Uh, but he, he was a lineal descendant of uh, George Washington's brother. Anyway, um, he's a, uh, a slaveholding Virginian turned newspaper editor in California who basically, um, basically brings the lost cause narrative into California in some ways before it really finds full flower in the South. I mean, he's saying all the things that lost cause warriors uh, really begin writing about earnestly in the next few years. But uh, but a couple of years early in California, huh? Um, well, we're, we're quickly running out of time. Um, I really, again, appreciate the disruption that your book causes for a lot of fields in forcing Civil War historians to look West, in forcing West historians to read some contingency back on the region, 
and think about what the South not just wanted to do or tried to do, but what they actually successfully did do in the West, which was astonishing and a lot and might, you know, force us as we're thinking about other narratives going on in the West uh, during those same time periods, they might read a little bit differently if we acknowledge that, you know, California was being run by Southern Democrats in the 1850s. I think that that changes how, I think it changes a lot of uh, other narratives that are attached. Um, so I think that's, I think it's powerful. I think the book is powerful uh, not and great, not just for the actual content, but for, you know, maybe the ripples it'll send out into a lot of fields. Yeah, well, thanks, Brendan. That was, that was better said than, than what I tried to articulate at the beginning of our conversation about how <laughs> I wanted the book to reach across various subfields. Um, do you uh, want to share with us anything that you're working on uh, moving forward? Yeah, let's see. I'm, I'm working on a few things, one of which is um, a project on a woman named Biddy Mason, who sort of has a cameo appearance in West of Slavery. Um, she was uh, born into slavery in Georgia in 1818 and then forcibly transported across the country, first to Mississippi and then to Utah and then to um, Southern California. She won her freedom in, in what I think is the largest freedom suit in the American West in 1856, which freed she and 13 other enslaved women and children um, in Los Angeles, uh, and then goes on to become a really well-respected midwife, nurse, and eventually a real estate entrepreneur in Los Angeles. And so right as the LA um, population is booming and the real estate market's uh, growing, Biddy Mason is, is building her fortune. Um, so the, the project is you know, it's a slavery to freedom and then sort of rags to riches, not to be too pat story. And are there good sources? Uh, did, did she leave behind good records or are you having to kind of dig around the edges to to find them? Yeah, telling her story is, uh, is um, a matter of pulling together the, the records left by her contemporaries um, and building her story through sort of a, deep contextual dive into this history. Um, she herself never, I mean, she was uh, prohibited from reading and writing when she was enslaved and then never never learned as a freed woman, um, became fabulously wealthy without literacy. So, um, she signed her will with an X. Um, so she herself left no uh, written records, but um, her uh, some members of her family did um, and a number of her contemporaries did. So you can, in fact, reconstruct this history if you pull enough material together. And, and, and if, you know, you can make big enough connections about the world in which she lived. So I think some of the, the challenge for me is, is really making those connections. Well, that sounds great. I, Thanks. I look forward to it. Thanks. Um, yeah, do, having you, fun with it. do you have any last parting shots? Um, no, just to, just to say thank you for having me on the show and for helping me to sort of think big about the book. I mean, it's been, I guess it's been out for more than a year now. And so sometimes I, as I get into this new project, I forget about what I was trying to achieve with the first one. 
Um, yeah. And whether or not I was successful, I don't know. Maybe the jury's still out. But um, but at least it's a book I hope to get conversation going into and to help make connections across regional lines and across sort of standard period markers. You know, the antebellum era, the Civil War, Reconstruction. Sometimes we hermetically seal off these periods and 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 study them on their own. But you know, it's a it's a fluid time, obviously, um, and it's a fluid country with people moving across regions. Yeah, uh, you're you're one of many who I think are consciously trying to do this exact thing, um, and I mean, in, you know, in a couple of years, I don't know if it's maybe 2024 or uh, the Western History Association and the Southern History Association are holding their annual conference together, and I think there will be all kinds of interesting cross pollination. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that'll be great. Um, I, I, you're right. There, there are so many great people. I can't even begin to name them all who are working across these regional lines and and pulling together the South and the West. Um, you know, we 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 can't see them as separate regions anymore. I think. Yeah, because they never were. I mean, there's they were connected then too. So exactly. Well, thank you so much, uh, Kevin. This has been really great. And I hope to cross paths sometime soon at a conference or, or somewhere else. Likewise, maybe that, uh, that South and West conference. There we go. All right, take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers.